This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to The Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several serial killers and what they have in common. Today is part two of Joseph and Michael Callinger. If you have missed part one, make sure that you go and listen to that first, or else you will be completely lost in this one. As stated in the last episode, the main book reference is The Shoemaker, Anatomy of a Psychotic by Flora Retta Schreiber. She interviewed Joseph Callinger while he was in prison. So this book is what Joseph Callinger told him, told her his side was of everything. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through and tell you some of the things that Callinger claims in this book. He says that his adoptive parents were abusive. A couple of examples is when he was a little kid, he heard the word fuck. Some other kids around him said the word and he'd never heard it before. He asked his dad what it meant. He got flogged with leather and hit with a wooden spoon, then grounded for a week with repeated punishment. And that was just for asking what it meant. It wasn't like he said it. He just was like, hey, what's fuck? And he claims they got just psychotic that he would say that word, even asking what it was. Then, not too long after, apparently his adopted mother heard that he tried to pull girls' pants down. So they hit him with a spoon. Then, in a trifecta for the poor young Joe Callinger, a girl kicked him in his crotch for nothing. And he got in trouble from his parents because they figured, since he was asking what dirty words were and trying to pull girls' panties down, they figured he was trying to do something with her, even though he insisted that he wasn't doing anything. So there was a pattern. Joe claimed that his parents would just beat him crazy over practically nothing. Other examples he states in the book are he was caught stealing from school. So an hour each night during the week, they would make him kneel on bare knees on sandpaper. When he wanted to go to the zoo, his mom hit him with a hammer on the head because it was he was wanting to be lazy, I believe. It was that it was just ridiculous that he would want to go to the zoo. And a neighbor claimed that she saw it. He said his dad often beat him with a homemade cat of nine tails. He started to take money from his parents to pay kids to see movies with him. That's how desperate he was for social interaction that he was not getting. He was caught stealing the money. So he says they took his fingertips to a lit burner to, quote, burn the demon thief out. So those are some examples of what Joseph said that he grew up with. A major thing that he claims that basically would lead to what is basically the root of everything that he did moving forward. When that girl kicked him in the crotch, it turns out apparently it gave him a hernia. So he had to, he was six years old. His parents told him when he came home that the doctor also removed the demon in his, quote, little bird to keep it from making it hard and causing him to do bad things and go to hell. So let that sink in. If this is true, this is super fucked up. So they didn't want him to be distracted by sex or anything like that. So they told him there was a demon in his penis and the doctor removed it. I mean, he's six, so why wouldn't he believe it? I mean, adults know that doctors are not qualified to remove demons. That is priests. But, you know, you're six, you don't know. So this obviously scarred him and was deeply impactful because then he immediately associated his penis with something negative. And even though they said, hey, we removed the negative thing, we took out the demon, 
he still associate associates that with being something bad and that it could lead to something dirty and lead him to go to hell so he was always focused and fixated on his penis he also was convinced that this made his penis stop growing so he was convinced that his penis was abnormally small so that that's as again he was fixated on it being dirty and it being too small so basically it, it added to his feelings of inadequacy he also got obsessed with knives his dad used this knife with a green handle when he was doing his shoemaking work. Then he would think about the, the knife that the doctor used in the operation on his little bird. He would have visions of knife cutting his penis. There was a point where apparently he stole a knife in school and he would squeeze it. And it actually carried through to his sex life where when he would masturbate, he would stab pictures of women. And when he was married, that sometimes he would have to squeeze a knife to be able to perform sexually. He claims that he had physical manifestations of mental issues where all of a sudden he would just start twisting and turning. He'd jerk his head from side to side and he would just laugh uncontrollably. At one point, he claims he saw God, he saw a bright light, and God gave him a mission. And I quote, The feet are also the key to the brain. Your mission is to control the brain through the feet. This is what I, God of the universe, command you to do. You will use this method to heal yourself and heal mankind. So that led him to starting experiments. So he started to put wedges in shoes. He supposedly did 40,000 experiments from 1951 to 1972 to try to get this mission for God done. At one point, he noticed that his parents had put a lock on their bedroom door on the inside. They admitted they were scared of him because, you know, like I mentioned, he said he would twist and turn. So he quotes them as saying, you smear lipstick on the walls, the windows, the mirror. They also said that he talks to himself and then that laughter. He eventually moved out, but he still kept working with them. He saw a figure that told him to burn his house down. And he just happened to love arson. So that worked out well for him. He burned down a shed near the house. The house was bar partly gutted and he got some insurance money for it. Then they moved into a house on East, East Fletcher Street after another house fire. And in this house, he dug a hole in the kitchen that was supposed to be used as an air raid shelter, but he stored junk in there. The hole was apparently eight feet wide in circumference. He had another hallucination to set a fire, the house on Fletcher Street. He did it four times, two or four days apart in May of 1963. Then he did one in August 1965, and the last one is October of 1967. So over a period of four years, he set four fires. The first three were ruled accidental, but he was tried for the last one because it seemed fishy at that point, amazingly enough. But he was acquitted because he didn't have insurance on it at the time because they had moved out. Later, he says the devil had told him to set fires. He heard voices, he saw full color images. So apparently at this point, he had God and the devil talking to him. He grew extremely paranoid and became convinced he was being watched by his neighbor across the street. In 1969, he bought a house to use as a warehouse. He said he had his kids dig a 20 foot hole in there. He would poop and come in the hole and what he said were quote, spasms of madness. He conducted assorted rituals with masturbation and defecation as elements of the ritual. For the subconscious regards excreta and secretions of the body as gifts of power. Soon after, he felt that he needed to re-educate his kids. He felt that Mary, Joey, and Stevie needed corrected. And if you're a fan of The Shining, you would understand why I said corrected like that. Because that is how Del Grady said 
I think your wife needs corrected. They needed corrected. Then he started conducting experiments on hamsters. He was convinced that if he would talk to them, that they would just respond to him. He was going to make little shoes for their feet and little wedges to put in the shoes. And he figured he'd get information. He believed that, that people would live longer if they didn't have bad feet. So he thought that testing on hamsters would be helpful. Which, you know, I mean, scientifically, that's valid. You test on animals before you test on humans. So, sure. He said, I wanted to experiment on the connection between the hamster's feet and their brains. If they listened to me and did what I told them, then I'd know that the wedges in the little shoes I'd have made for them were doing them good by giving them greater durability and intelligence. And then they would obey him. And he said, the problem is, I think my kids are intelligent. Anyway, they had good feet, but they didn't want to obey. So this is why he felt like he needed to correct them. So he needed to re-educate them. And the hamsters would help determine if that theory was correct. But it didn't go well. So I'm pretty sure all of them wound up dying. He claims that he treated his daughter as his girlfriend for three weeks. He took her on dates. Now, he didn't make any sexual advances to her. But he said he felt that they developed a rapport like they were boyfriend and girlfriend. And then he felt super betrayed when she was still interested in other boys. And he claims that his mental state was the best it had ever been during those three weeks. Alas, Mary Jo and Joey ran away from home. So he found them, brought them home, and punished them. And this is the punishment that led to his arrest when Mary Jo, Joey, and Mike decided to go to the cops and complain of abuse. So I had referenced that in the last episode. And then, as stated before, they recanted. Now, in The Shoemaker, Joe claims that he went to them and was like, hey, everything's shitty right now because everybody thinks I'm a piece of shit. It's hard for me to get work. No one's coming to the shoe shop anymore. How can I feed you if this is happening? So if you recant your claim, if you say that you made it up, then we'll be able to get, make money again. And it's just going to be in the best interest for everyone. So he claims that he bargained with them and they were, he paints them as being very uh, calculating and dismissive. So it was easy to convince them because they were so greedy and whatever. He claims they even helped him create false evidence that proved that they were making it up. Then in 1973, he got an order from God where he needed to kill everyone with a butcher knife. He made Michael his partner and when God would order it, they would take a bus to a town they didn't know. He claims Mike readily agreed and was the power for Joe. So during those robberies, whenever Joe would falter, he would look at Michael and think, okay, I can do this because Michael's young and strong and he's got a big dick. He would actually think like, okay, he's got a good penis and I don't. So I can do this because I have Michael. And he claims that Michael was totally into the robberies and everything and that Michael would be disappointed if they weren't robbing and and such. He says that when he told Mike that they needed to kill someone, he claims Mike was totally on board. So they were walking around to pick someone to kill. They were in front of a recreation center near a pool. They saw a boy about nine or 10 years old by himself. He said he lived a couple blocks away and they asked if he would help them move some boxes of ribbon. So they led them to an abandoned rug factory and that is where they killed him. So again, Joe claims Mike was all excited to be involved in this process. Later, he felt he received another command from God to kill, this time his son Joey. And the Lord told him, you must get him up there, up to where it's high, throw him off the edge of the cliff, make sure the place you choose to kill him is so high that falling will mean certain death. 
he says his first attempt, he took Joey, Mike, and Jimmy to a coal mine and slate pit area with mounds that someone could fall off and get hurt. Now, keep in mind, Jimmy didn't know what the hell was going on, and neither did Joey, but Mike was in on it. So Joe was trying to get Joey and Mike to pose for a picture near the lip of a fall, but Joey wasn't backing up far enough to fall off of it. So Mike tries to throw a rock at Joey to catch him off balance, and then Joe loses his urge to kill him. He loses it, and then so he's like, never mind, let's, let's all just go. Second attempt, he gave Mike and Joey gasoline to burn down nearby trailers. And him and Mike figured Joey's so dumb, he'll smoke in there and burn himself to death. So they were acting like it was just something fun to do. Because again, Joe loves fire and you know, I don't know, I guess if you're a kid and your dad's like, hey, let's go burn some shit down, then eh, I don't know, that could be fun. So he sent Mike and Joey first and he'll be like, I'll, I'll be there. Mike was supposed to block Joey into the building. So he thought he blocked him in, he sets the fire, and Joey winds up getting out and calling the fire department and goes home. <laughs> so he actually gets out and calls the fire department. So Joe and Mike were like, are you fucking kidding me? So not only, you know, because Joey thought it was a joke. Like, oh, you know, we caught this on fire. You know, I'll make it an anonymous call to the fire department because, you know, this is just fun. He doesn't realize <laughs> anything is up. So number two is thwarted. Third attempt, they took him to a building that's under construction on a, under the premise that they're going to take pictures because they would often, like you know, do photo shoots and stuff. So they had him lay face down on a scaffold. They wedged him between the ladder and the planks because they were planning on cutting off his penis. But Joe backed out again. And I will note that there's a lot of um, God commanding Joe to cut off penises and butcher genitalia. Which again, like I said, it makes sense if, because of the whole little bird demon thing, that this would be implanted in his brain. The fourth attempt. This one was successful. They found a demolition area. So Joey, Mike, and Joe are looking around this demolition area. They find a staircase that was where part of it was underwater. They found a platform and a ladder. So they had him pose on the ladder. And they thought it would be better if he was chained to it for the picture. And then they have him over the water so he's facing the water. But instead of taking pictures, they just drop him in the ladder into the water. And he winds up drowning. Again, Joe claims Mike was totally on board for all of this. I'm going to take a second to remind you that at the point that he was tried for Maria for Maria Fashing's murder and the robberies, no one knew for sure that Joey had been killed. It was ruled a accidental death, and there was no proof that it was Joe. So until he told Schreiber this story about the t attempts to kill Joey, no one else had any idea. This is the first time he had ever admitted that he had killed Joey and that boy, Jose, the, the poor little boy. No one had any idea that there was any kind of connection to that boy and Joe Callinger. So this is the point where he admits that these things happened. What's interesting is he claims that right after he killed Joey is the first time he saw the apparition named Charlie. So he sees a disembodied head and he starts harassing Joe. He admits his name's Charlie and he had a young boy's voice. So then Charlie would appear to him frequently. Schreiber says that it makes sense to her that Charlie was a distorted image of Joey's head bobbing up from the filthy pool. And since he showed up soon after Joey's murder... That does kind of make sense that maybe he would uh, be a um, ramification of his guilt feelings. 
But Charlie stays around for a long time, so he claims he sees this uh, head named Charlie. He has a little girl named Bonnie. So Bonnie had an issue where she had sores all over. And he winds up having a dream, which is a vision from God, that what would cure Bonnie would be vaginal fluid. So that's what prompted the robberies, as he had to go and take vaginal fluid from a woman to help his daughter with her skin condition. God had come to him, and in addition to telling him that he had to heal people through their feet, he also said he had to kill everyone on earth. So now he had the mission of healing his daughter by taking fluid from a woman's vagina, and, I quote, had to activate his plan for killing everyone on the planet earth. So the robberies were perfect because he could start killing people and he could also get the stuff to heal his daughter. So he would bring his brown paper bag with a butcher knife, rawhide laces. He would keep a rubber, rubber gloves in his pocket, a needle attached to a syringe wrapped in tissue. His plan was to draw blood with a needle, slice off the woman's breasts, and cut through her quote-unquote hairy delta to get the vaginal fluid for Bonnie. Yeah, there's a lot there. So we can see how he goes from his parents being abusive, telling him he had a demon in his penis that was taken out, which led him to think that he was inadequate and that his penis was small. He developed obsessions with knives. He had physical man manifestations. Then he had God and the devil telling him to burn things down or to help people through their feet. He starts to become paranoid. He gets arrested for his kids, and then that that's recanted. So you can see things just keep amp ramping up and up and up. So, you know, you go from stealing to burning things down to beating your kids. And then when he kills a young boy and then kills his son, and then he starts seeing visions of Charlie, he gets convinced that he needs to kill everyone in the world. Now, this is everything that he said to Flora Schreiber in the book The Shoemaker. I could not find other sources to back up most of those things. So obviously, as I've stated before, it makes me nervous if I have one source that has all the information and I'm having trouble corroborating most of that information. Which leads me to the problem with the book's credibility. When I mentioned to Todd that this book was written by the same person who wrote the book Sybil, he made a comment to me like, wasn't that debunked? Like, didn't they prove that that was fake? And I had not heard that. I haven't read Sybil. I haven't seen the movies. So I decided to look into it because that's interesting. If, if someone writes a book that's supposedly nonfiction and then it's proven to be untruthful, then that's an important thing to know if you're using one of her other books as a source for something. So to catch you up real fast, if you are not familiar, in 1973, Flora Retta Schreiber came out with the book Sybil, the classic true story of a woman possessed by 16 personalities. It was based on a real case, and it was instrumental in creating a new psychiatric diagnosis, multiple personality disorder, or MPD, known today as Dissociative Identity Order. It's the book that helped really bring to light that that might actually be a valid psychological issue. The woman's real name was not Sybil. It was Shirley Mason. She was an art teacher. She had some emotional issues in the 1950s, and she started going to Dr. Cornelia Wilbur, who was the one who diagnosed her with MPD. Schreiber worked from records of Mason's therapy, 
including thousands of pages of patient diaries and transcripts of taped recorded therapy sessions. Schreiber stipulated that the material be archived at a library to protect Mason's identity. So she asked for all of her source material to be put into a library where no one can see it. Schreiber died in 1989, and for a decade after Schreiber's death, Sybil's identity remained unknown. Two researchers discovered that her real name was Shirley Mason, and she was deceased, so they figured they'll go ahead and unseal the papers. The same year that her identity was revealed, Robert Reiber, a psychologist, presented a paper in which he accused Mason's doctor of, quote, fraudulent construction of a multiple personality. It is clear from Wilbur's own words that she was not exploring the truth, but rather planting the truth as she wanted it to be. In 1994, Herbert Spiegel, an acclaimed psychiatrist and hypnotherapist, had begun telling reports that he occasionally treated Shirley Mason when Wilbur was out of town. And during those sessions, Mason asked him if he wanted her to switch other personalities. And he's like, what are you talking about? She said, oh, my normal doctor likes it when I talk about other selves. So to him, that obviously meant, well, Wilbur's telling her to do this. So we have 1994, he's this, this one dude's like, okay, this might be bullshit. And then a few years later, another dude's like, okay, I have some material that showed that, she, that it was bullshit too. Fast forward to 2011. The book, Sybil Exposed, The Extraordinary Story Behind the Famous Multiple Personality Case, came out by Debbie Nathan. It claims that Schreiber collaborated with Wilbur to exploit Mason and make false claims to sell a book. Wilbur treated her with powerful drugs, some later determined to be habit-forming or taken off of the market. Many doctors prescribed those drugs, but Wilbur sometimes gave Mason higher doses than was customary. She also used sodium pentothal, known as truth serum, which was later found to produce what came to be known as false memories. Wilbur frequently made house calls, even on evenings and weekends. She helped Mason financially. She also offered to get her into medical school and pay her tuition and living expenses. In 1958, Mason handed her a letter saying that she had been lying. And I quote, I am not going to tell you there isn't anything wrong, but it is not what I have led you to believe. I do not have any multiple personalities. I do not even have a double. I am all of them. I have been essentially lying. What did Wilbur say? She told her patient that it was just a, quote, major defensive maneuver. It's merely the ego's attempt to trick itself into thinking it didn't need therapy, but she really did need it. It was denying that she'd been tortured by her mother, but that showed that she really had been tortured. Wrap your mind around that one. So she convinced Mason to keep moving forward. Now, I haven't read Sybil Exposed, just like I haven't read Sybil. Based on different articles I read, Wilbur seemed to have a non-professional relationship with Mason to the point where she eventually, basically, they lived together, they took care of each other. So if their relationship was that close where Wilbur was supporting her and assisting her with selling her paintings. If the relationship was that close, then I think it does support the idea that she was using Mason just to get money for a book about her. So when Mason, who's essentially meal ticket, comes to her and says, now I've been lying, it makes sense she'd be like, oh, fuck no. And she would pull out of her ass, oh, no, 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 that just means that it proves everything. Don't you see? Because her meal ticket was going to walk away. One article said that Schreiber herself questioned the truth of it, but since she'd already gotten an advance on the book, she went forward with it. Since I only saw one place where that was stated, I'm not sure if that's true, but, I mean, it's possible. 
So money could have motivated both Wilbur and Mason. And then if you think about it, Mason was being supported by Wilbur. She was getting attention. So why wouldn't she go along with it? Another thing that I wondered as I was researching this is the two psychiatrists that came out like 20 years later and said this was all a hoax. They waited until all three women were dead to say, oh, you know, this was a lie. Why would they wait until they were all dead if it were the truth? My spidey senses tingle like, ah, uh, maybe it's bullshit. And they didn't want to be called out for it being bullshit. However, your thought was if it's for money. So now they're speaking out because they want money or, you know, they want the fame. They want the popularity of debunking this. But if that's true, if they wanted money to ride off the coattails of someone else, wouldn't they have come out when it was popular and tried to debunk it and try to get popularity that way? Cash in on it then? Or is it that it's the truth and the truth might be a strong word. If they had evidence that might show that it was a fraud, maybe it was too much of a risk for them professionally and personally because it was so popular. I mean, this catapulted. I mean, there was a movie. It was, it all of a sudden, multiple personality disorder was huge. And it went from like, say, there were 200 diagnosed cases at that point to, I can't even remember the number. It was like 40,000. It was, it blew up. So all of a sudden it was, it was popular. It, so to come out and be two dudes in the face of this massive thing, then maybe it would have been hard to try to say, no, this is a lie. So it's easier to wait until everyone's dead and they're not all up in your face. And you can actually say, no, here are my facts. And you don't have those negative ramifications because it's calmed the fuck down. When I'm reading a book, as I've referenced before, I try not to either automatically assume everything's right or automatically assume everything's wrong. I try to be neutral about it. But when I was reading this, there was a moment when I was like, what the fuck? Are you serious right now? <laughs> so <laughs> in The Shoemaker, Joe says that he had an imaginary companion named Tommy. And I quote, Tommy lived in Joe's stomach, came out through Joe's throat and mouth, took Joe by the wrist and held Joe's left index finger in the mirror. If that sounds familiar, then you have seen The Shining or read the book or both. I mentioned The Shining earlier. In The Shining, Danny, the little boy, has an imaginary friend named Tony, okay? So Tony, Tommy, in the movie, Danny tells the doctor, quote, he's a little man that lives in my mouth. He hides in my stomach. Later, he says to Dick Holleran, Tony is a little boy that lives in my mouth. And when he talks, Tony, he uses his left index finger in the movie. Later in the hall, he uses his right index finger. But, okay, so let me repeat this. In The Shining, he says, Tony's a little man that lives in my mouth. He hides in my stomach. And then he uses his index finger to make Tony talk. Joe says, Tommy lived in Joe's stomach, came out through Joe's throat and mouth, took Joe by the wrist, and held Joe's left index finger in the mirror. Now, The Shining book came out in 1977. The movie came out in 1980. Shoemaker came out in 1983. So it's interesting to me that he's so fucking specific and that it fits so perfectly with what happened in this movie that came out three years before. And what blows my mind is how did she not catch on to that? Did she, I guess... I thought the movie was pretty fucking popular right away. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she's was too busy writing and researching that she missed that phenomenon of a movie that was fucking everywhere. So obviously she didn't notice 
and none of her editors noticed. Maybe it's one of those things where it wasn't as big of a deal until later. I know that I've seen documentaries about The Shining and it's, I'm going blank as to whether it was immediately a hit, but it's still like, it still just blows my mind. And it either means Joe was full of shit, at least in some things, or it is possible maybe he absorbed that and it stuck in his brain, thought that it was an actual manifestation of his own. If he does have mental issues, it's possible that he expressed himself that way. But to me, it just seems kind of fishy. So that makes me kind of doubt. Again, it's hard for it not to make me doubt a lot of things. But it definitely makes me doubt the Tommy. Unless maybe that image spoke to him. Not like God or the devil necessarily, but I mean like it resonated within him. So he took it as his own to express something. And maybe he didn't mean to steal the idea. So maybe it's just another form of him expressing himself and that he wasn't trying to steal an idea and he wasn't lying. But it doesn't help. I don't think if you have people who don't believe, because there were several people that, that thought he was putting on and that he was just really good at seeming like he had mental health issues. So it doesn't look good if you're quoting movies and saying that it's your own thing. That's all I'm saying. Now, there was a couple times in her book that I felt were pretty amusing. So she was talking about how Callinger was so focused on his penis size. This is a quote. He was convinced that the demon had not been driven out of his penis, but according to prediction, his penis had remained small. Actually, Joe's penis was not abnormally small. It was small enough when compared to those of the older boys he had seen in school lavatories to feed the small penis delusion that Stephen and Anna had planted. Okay. My first thought was as soon as she said, actually, Joe's penis was not abnormally small. How the fuck does she know? That was my, like, how intimate were these discussions? So granted, okay, he probably didn't show it to her. So it's probably not that, you know, juvenile and I'm probably being silly. But seriously, though, how does she know that his penis size is normal? Unless the, I got to thinking maybe doctors have examined him, I'm sure. And I guess they examined that as well. And so she was able to say he had a normal size penis, but it seems weird. And especially when, when she's just surmising, it was small enough when compared to those of the older boys he had seen. But from what point of view is that happening? You know, I mean, it's not like she was there back in time. You know, she was able to view back in time when all these young boys are in the locker room and she can see that their penises are this size and his was that size. So how is she? how does she know that it was small enough when compared to those of older boys? Unless she's just assuming. Because there's no proof how big or small Joe's penis was then. I don't know. It caught me up. I'm telling you. It's like that kind of thing where I'm like, what the fuck is happening right now? Speaking of penises, there's more penis talk, of course. This is my favorite quote from the whole book. So Schreiber is a poet, as you'll see. He's speaking of a time that he was planning on stabbing a boy in his groin when he was like 12 or 13. So he heard the voice of a demon. He saw this boy. He was gonna stab the boy in the groin, but instead he ran away. This is the quote. For the penis of the other boy and Joe's penis had, in Joe's mind, become one. The object not of hatred and castration but of self-love and preservation. This penis belonged to all mankind, and to destroy it 
was to destroy all men, including Joe Callinger. This penis belonged to all mankind, and to destroy it was to destroy all men. I want that on my tombstone. <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate the poetry. I, I appreciate what she, the picture she's trying to paint and what she's trying to get across. But I have to admit, when I read something like that, it seems like you're taking yourself too damn seriously. You know, it's... He just he decided not to cut the guy's dick off. But instead, she makes it this big, grand... You know, it was a, it was no longer hatred. It was about love and preservation, and and now it's all of mankind. I think it was just dude chickened out. So sometimes I think in her in this book, I do feel like she take takes things a little bit too far, which you know that's one of the things about I guess anything really, but especially when you're talking about psych- psychiatry and psychology, is you know some people take it a certain place, and other people may not agree that that's right. But it may not mean it's invalid. Some people go to Freudian theory. Some people don't. It's a personal preference, I suppose. So that quote may have been wonderful and spot on. And someone may say, amen, sister. That's exactly what I would have said. And then people like me may be like, seriously. But it's that kind of over-the-top quality that makes me kind of like... If she's exaggerating, if she's so grandiose about that, is she kind of trumping up some of the other stuff? I don't know. The problem is, is that at this point, I'm not sure if everything in this book is very accurate. If she was stretching the truth sometimes, if she put out right lies in it, maybe some of it's the truth, maybe some of it's not, so how do I know? Let's say that she did report things exactly as Callinger stated them. Which that's, that would be what I would expect her to do, right? She's interviewing this guy. She wants his side of the story. It makes sense that she would report what he said, whether he's telling a lie or not. But we have to keep in mind that since he's talking about himself and defending himself or explaining himself, it makes sense he's going to downplay some of the bad stuff and make himself look better. So I've got a couple of examples of where it really seemed like in the book, it was painting him as a more sympathetic picture. So... He was allowed to be in a play when he was 13. He loved it. He was supposedly wonderful at it. His teacher was fawning all over him, and all the students were so excited, and the teacher actually personally visited him like, oh, you have to let him be in drama. And the rents didn't go for it. They made fun of him and bashed his dreams. So that reminded him he needed to stay being a shoemaker. As I read that, I have to admit, when you hear oh everybody loved me and you know my teacher actually came to see my parents and they thought that I was awesome and I'm destined to be an actor now because everybody saw it and everybody knows now it seems a bit much and it's possible again it is possible that he actually did really well in a play people actually did like it and the teacher tried to encourage him to be in it and then his parents shit on him it's possible it just seems like when you stack it all up Maybe it's it's stuck in there to make him look a little bit better and be more sympathetic. Another example is the idea that he got orders from God. God told him, well, he's got to kill everyone. So how can you look down on him if God is commanding him to do things? Or if the devil is convincing him to do things? That makes him equally sympathetic because now he's got the duality. He's got God talking to him and the devil talking to him. So you're... It would be easier to think, okay, well, A, 
I feel bad for him because he has these struggles. And B, he obviously does have mental issues if he thinks God and the devil are leading him to do these things. God told him to kill his own son. God told him to cure his baby daughter. He needed to get vaginal fluid. And dude just wanted to help his daughter. So how can you look down on him for that? He also talks about how much trouble Joey got into with the law. So at one point, he had an affair with a 34-year-old man. So Joe sued for statutory rape. Then Joey got into a fight with a cop and was arrested. Then there were three other cases for dumping trash and cursing at a cop, larceny of a railroad car, receiving stolen goods, conspiracy and vandalism, trespassing. So he was establishing a pattern of getting in trouble with the cops a lot and just causing general trouble in his family's life. So I think it's interesting that even though they do acknowledge his other kids got into trouble, it specifically goes into detail about how Joey was getting into trouble. So I think it's interesting that Joey is the one who winds up getting killed and that God tells Joseph to kill the main kid causing the trouble. So that's what I mean when I'm saying when he spoke to Schreiber, he had all of these things that would basically defend him. Now, he did mention some of this stuff in court, so he did have some of this already on deck. And I hate to say on deck because that does sound like he was calculating. Again, I don't know how much of this was calculated and how much of this was legitimately part of his schizophrenia. As far as his mental state, in the book specifically, The Shoemaker, Joe claims that he took up bowling. He, it became a compulsion, so he actually built a 12-foot by 4-foot alley, bowling alley in his house, in their bedroom. And claimed to play every weekday from 4 a.m. until it was time to work. And then on Saturday and Sunday as well. He claims his wife didn't mind, but the neighbors hated it. He said he took walks in the middle of the night to test his shoe experiments. He got lonely, so he'd wake up the kids and have them walk with him. And to keep them interested, they'd collect trash. And, well, like trash, like, um, you know, things you see on the side of the road that you want to salvage. That kind of thing. He also said that he got tired of bowling and got obsessed with horse racing. He would send his son Stevie to buy the racing forms, wake Mary Jo up in the middle of the night, and have her pick the horses. He kept waiting, waking his wife up at night for tea, and they quote, as many as 30 cups in a single night. I found it interesting that the other book about Callinger called The Door-to-Door Killer, the author questions, how did he have the time to do all of those things? So he says that he took up bowling and he would bowl from every weekday from 4 a.m. until it was time to work. But then he would also take walks in the middle of the night. And he would drink 30 cups of tea in one night. So I don't know how true the details are to that. I don't know if he actually built a bowling alley in his house. Although it worked in There Will Be Blood. That dude had a bowling alley and, you know, it's possible. Again, I don't know how many of these details are true. It could be his wife was exaggerating. He would have as many 30, as 30 cups in a single night. So maybe it was, you know, the expression of he just wanted tea all the time. And maybe he didn't bowl all the time. So it could be that he did those things, just not as much as depicted. He also believed he was a butterfly. And he did bring that up in court. So again, there are some details he did bring up in court. But then there were other details that he just brought up to Schreiber later. And that's what that's where it's kind of difficult is when I'm trying to research what he actually said on trial and who he said what to and then what he didn't say to anybody but Schreiber later after he was in jail. So it's a it's a weird place to balance. And keeping that in mind, the whole reason I'm talking about the calendars is for the Families That Kill Together series that I'm doing. The trouble is 
we have no information from Mike. So Mike never spoke. He wouldn't tell anybody anything. He never made statements. He basically went into hiding. I wasn't able to even find what his name is now. He changed his name. So we don't know for sure what the hell was going on with Mike. So obviously if he's 13 and he's going to rob and stuff like that, you would think that meant that he was under his dad's influence and that his dad was coercing him into doing it. So even if he was kind of on board for it, he was still a minor. So he was never officially charged with any of these crimes. Again, it's interesting that in The Shoemaker, Joe just keeps saying, Mike was on board. Mike was on board with everything that happened. And, you know, Mike was into it. Like, he was disappointed that we didn't kill someone. And he was disappointed that he didn't get to rape that girl. And it makes me wonder, is he saying that because he needed to say that to justify it to himself? Or was there a part of him that in his schizophrenia that he believed that, that that's how he was interpreting Mike's actions. Or it could be that he's full of shit and he knew his son didn't want to take part in it, but he made his son take part in it. So I, I don't know. Again, that we will never know the truth, but it is it is interesting to see, not knowing Mike's side, that his dad painted him in that light. Okay. So there's a lot. And I do recommend that you read The Shoemaker because whether it's completely true or completely shit or somewhere in between, it's still an interesting read. It's still interesting to see the things that Callinger supposedly said. And you definitely listen to the last podcast on the left because Henry's impression of Joseph Callinger is the best. It is fucking fantastic. And I actually didn't want to do anything in Joe Callinger's voice because I would want to do that and I wouldn't be able to do it justice. So definitely listen to that. They really, really go into good details about the book. For the rest of this episode, I am going to go through the differences between the books and my references on each of the robberies so you can get an idea of how many differences there can be. So if you aren't interested in that, you can go ahead and turn it off. I appreciate you listening. And I'll be coming out with Gordon Stewart Northcott and the Wineville Chicken Coop murders in the next episode. So you can tune in then. However, if you are on board, let's jump on in. So again, I had three main references, The Shoemaker, The Door-to-Door Killer, and then an, an article in New York Magazine. Shoemaker came out in 1983, Door-to-Door Killer in 1984, but New York Magazine actually came out in 1974. So that was a great reference to find because it's the only one that I could find where it detailed what happened as it was happening. So I went through all three of those and compared every little detail of the robberies to see where things matched up or not. So in the Leonia robbery, the one where the woman got murdered, the New York reference said that Dee Dee saw a knife and a gun. He pointed the gun and told her to strip, and then he bound her, took her upstairs. With the other two references, it said she only saw a gun, then he stripped her and bound her. So again, it seems like minor details, but you have a reference where there's a knife and a gun, he tells her to strip, and then another reference where it's just a gun, and then he takes her clothes off. There's also the detail where the New York reference says he binds her and then takes her upstairs. The other references said that he take her upstairs and then binds her, so it's reversed. And again, these are little details, but it's crazy to me that just the order of things can be kind of flipped around. And I would think there would have been statements that they could have looked at. In a way, I tend to lean toward the New York one, because that's they were reporting it as it was right after it happened. So I would assume the information would be fresh. Then again, who the fuck knows? Okay, moving forward. So New York. Brandy saw a gun and a knife. She was bound. Tape over her eyes and mouth. 
then taken upstairs. The other two references, Randy is taken upstairs, then tied, gagged, and blindfolded. So again, it reverses when they're taken upstairs versus when they're gagged. The New York article never mentions anything about the women being on their period, which I can kind of understand because maybe they didn't really want to put that in there and they didn't see the point. But in both the books, they mention both women are on their period. And there's a little side note I have to throw in here that Schreiber Gottlopper, in her quest for drama and painting the picture, she says that when he came in the room and both women were there on their period, there was the, the quote-unquote rancid smell. Let me tell you, there's no fucking way that there was a rancid smell just because two women were both on their period. I mean, fucking seriously. Like, that's the kind of thing that I'm like, really? Anyway, I also find it interesting that in the book Door to Door Killer, the witness said she heard him call the kid John. It turns out that Joey's middle name is John. So that kind of makes me wonder, was that actually John at that? Was that actually Joey at that point? I don't know. Again, that's the only time I saw any kind of reference to it. It's kind of weird unless, I mean, it's possible that she misheard what was said, but I found that interesting that they specifically mention she heard him call the kid John. And I just realized I was saying Joey, but it would be impossible to be Joey because he was dead at the time. I meant James. It is possible they were saying James. In The Shoemaker, she said their knees were bound to their chest in Door to Door Killer. They were hogtied which, as you know, is the opposite of having your knees bound to your chest. In Shoemaker, the mother, the aunt, and the little boy were on the floor, and the boy was bound by Joe. In Door to Door, they're on the bed, and the boy's not bound. In New York, reference, Mom Retta Jeffrey Welby met Joe at the door when Joe heard it open. He took the mom up to the upstairs hall and left the boy and girl in the living room. However, in Shoe and Door, Joe answers the door and has the, puts the gun to Frank's head. So as opposed to the 1974 reference, it says they just came in. And so Joe came downstairs to find them in the house. The way more dramatic version in the, shoe, the Shoemaker and Door to Door is that he answers the door and puts the gun in their face. Also, in the two main references, they put, they put them all in the living room. In the New York reference, they took the mom upstairs. In Shoemaker, they're blindfolded. In Door to Door Killer, they're not blindfolded. In New York, they put an, he puts an overcoat on Jeffrey and takes him to the basement, shoves him behind a partition, reveals his manhood, threatens him, and Jeffrey faints. In Shoe and Door, he bound Frank's wrist with his own belt. He covered his mouth with tape, put a coat on his head, took him downstairs, tied his ankles and wrists, trousers down, shirt up, poked his genitals with a knife and threatened him. No fainting. So whether he fainted or not isn't a huge deal. But again, it's these tiny details. In New York, he took Maria down and told her to strip. She refused. He told her to fillet him. She refused. So he stabs her in the throat and into the back and stabs her left breast. In Shoemaker, he stabs her in the right side three times, also below the armpit, stabs her in the left side three times, and the right breast under her nipple, then in the mid-back, and then the neck again. In door-to-door, -door, he stabs her in the right side three times, the left side two times, in the left breast, and below the left armpit. So to paint the picture, New York, throat, back, left breast. Shoemaker, right side three times, armpit, left side three times, right breast, mid-back, neck. Door, 
right side three times, left side two times, and instead of the right breast, as in the shoemaker, it's in the left breast in door to door. So again, it's, I'm not sure how those details, because you'd think there were police reports. You'd think that they would come right out and be able to tell you, this is how it happened. And the only thing that they all three agree on is that she was stabbed in the, in once in the back, at least, and a breast was stabbed. So both Shoemaker and Door to Door agree that she was stabbed three times on the right side. They don't agree on how many times on the left side, and they don't agree which breast. They do agree that there was an armpit involved. In New York, Randy got free and untied the mom, and the mom went out. Now, I will say they must have meant Retta in that conversation, because when I was looking back through it, it couldn't have been Randy. It had to be Retta. So there's that. But in both Shoemaker and Door to Door, Edwina, the mother, is the one that got free. In Shoemaker, Calendra found a green shed and threw a shirt and tie in it. In Door to Door Killer and the New York Magazine, he left it in the puddle. Now, this is interesting to me because any other time, it's the New York reference that diverges from Shoe and Door to Door. And in this one case, the Shoemaker is the divergent reference. So both Door to Door Killer and New York Magazine said he left it in the puddle. Shoemaker says he threw it in a shed. Again, I would think that would be something that could be checked and verified. But, as I said, if she is just going by what Callenger says, and Callenger claims he put it in a shed, I don't know. That's what he claims. In Lindenwald, in Shoemaker, Joe knocked and was holding the boy's arm. She tried to close the door, but he got in. In Door to Door, in New York, she only saw Joe at the door, but they did. he did push his way in. So again, it's just a case of, was it Joe, or was it Joe and the boy? Two agree it was just Joe. One says it was Joe and the boy. In Shoemaker, Joe took off her clothes, tied her to bed springs with a pillowcase over her head. In Door to Door, New York, she took off her own clothes and he tied her feet to separate handles of the bureau with her hands bound behind her back, face down. So we go from Joe taking off her clothes and tying her to the bread springs with a pillowcase over her head to she took off her own clothes and he tied her feet to the bureau. And this is interesting too, because so far in this one, again, Shoemaker is, has different details than the other two sources. In Shoemaker, Joe gave Mike a butcher knife to hold to the woman and then took it back. In Door to Door, Joe threatens her to stay quiet with a knife and Mike's not really in the room. Shoemaker, Joe couldn't stay hard, so he rubbed the head of his penis onto her pubic hair to get some of the fluid and he came a few blobs of semen. He put it on a glove, touched her vagina for fluid and turned the glove inside out. In Door in New York, he untied her ankles, removed the gag, and ordered her to flate him. So there was no mention whatsoever about any of his penis touching her and him taking her vaginal fluid. Again, I think that's because Callender is claiming he did those things, whether he did or not. At the Harrisburg robbery, again, we have the door-to-door -door and the New York reference agreeing. He tied her arms behind her back with boot laces. When she, she told him to get a job, he threatened her with a knife and it went through the front of her blouse. Neither one realized she was cut. She went up to the son's room. He took the covers, sheets, and mattress. He lied her down on bare springs, untied her hands, told her to remove her clothes, tied her face down with the wrists and ankles tied to the springs. In the shoemaker, he left her with Mike and the gun. He went alone to her son's room and removed the bedspread, sheets, mattress, bed springs, and he flipped over the bed. He had her lay on the bed frame 
covered her head with tape. The blindfold had cotton under it. He was going to put lighter fluid in the cotton and set it on fire, but then he didn't. She was on her stomach. He turned her on her back, tied her ankles to the bed frame, spread eagle, handkerchief in her mouth, and he taped over it. He exposed her left breast to amputate it, moved the knife to the left of the nipple, but didn't cut it off, put her clothes in place. So this is an important one because it says in the other references that were non-calendar interviews that he didn't realize that he had cut her on the way up the stairs because he was threatening her with a knife. But in his version, he had this whole thing where he was going to light her on fire, but then he decided not to. And then he was going to amputate her breast, but he didn't really do it. He claims he did not cut her. So it's interesting that he both makes it more dramatic where, oh my God, he was going to set her on fire to... But then I put her clothes back in place. So he makes himself sound both worse and better. So like I was going to do this really, really super terrible thing. But then I was I was nice. So again, it's that that level of we know that she was cut because later on she admits that she was cut. And the, the police said that she was cut. But Callinger didn't say anything about it. In the shoemaker, he took Ethel upstairs, showed her Helen, took her to another bedroom, face down on the floor, hands behind her back. Mike bound her wrist with wire, put a coat over her head, moved her to the closet. And the other two sources, he took her to a bedroom without showing her Helen, had her remove her clothes, tied her hands behind her bound feet, pillowcase over her head, and then took her to the attic. So there's there's little details like he didn't show her Helen in two of the sources, but he did in one. Uh, Mike does the binding in one, but not in the other. In Shoemaker, he took Thelma upstairs, showed her Helen and Ethel, put a black shawl over her hat, had her lie down on the floor next to Ethel, wire-tied wrists and feet, put her in the closet, but left the door open for her. In the other two sources, he had a gun. He did show a naked Helen to her, took her to Ethel's room. Then he took her to the upstairs hall and had her remove her clothes, had her lay face down on the floor, used appliance cord to tie her hands and feet, took her rings and bracelets, pillowcase over the head, closed the closet door. So this is another important detail where, in Callinger's version, he left the door open for her. But in the other versions, he closed that fucking door on her. So again, he's trying to maybe make himself look a little bit better. Or maybe he's not remembering her right because he wants to remember being nicer than maybe he was. There's also little details like whether Helen was dressed or not and using wire ties as opposed to appliance cord. Now, Anna Pearl in Shoemaker, he took her upstairs, showed her the knife... Showed her the friends, took her to the alcove between the stairs, tied her hands and ankles, taped her eyes and mouth, moved her to the bathroom. Other two sources. He put a gun in her face, so he didn't show her the knife, put a gun in her face. Second floor hall, bound hands, wrapped tape over her eyes, ears and mouth. Left the boy in charge while he took Ethel to the attic. Then Joe pulled off her clothes and took her rings and purse, showed her the knife, put her on the bathroom floor. So at some point he did show her the knife in the other two references, whereas... He didn't specifically mention that he put a gun on her face in his version of it. An example of when I was trying to find more information on these specific robberies to see if I had another source to shed the light on some of these details and the uh, discrepancies in them. New York Times in 1976 said that the woman who her breast was cut, that it happened when she was bound to the bed in her home. So there's yet another detail. And then there's another one where in the morning call in 1996, they said during one robbery, Callinger forced the Dumont, New Jersey woman to perform a sex act on Michael. And in all the other cases that I could see, Michael didn't actually go through with anything and that nothing actually happened sexually with Michael and the woman. 
So I've gone through all the robberies and examined the differences between the sources. This is something that blew my mind. In Shoemaker, Schreiber talks about after Callinger has been in prison for a while, he eventually does connect with his birth mother and he has a half-sister. And they end up actually forming some kind of a relationship. I did not see anything else about any other siblings or anything. However, I happened upon this one article and I quote, Earlier this month, Mr. Callinger's sister died and last week his 79-year-old mother, Anna, suffered a stroke. Tomorrow, according to the neighbors, her leg is to be amputated in a local hospital. I can't take much more, Betty Callinger said on Friday after her husband and son had been taken away by the police from the tiny cramped quarters above the shoe store that he inherited from his father. My sister-in-law died, and then Joey died, and then my mother-in-law, and now this, she said. It's a mistake, I know it is, but I just can't take any more. I know I made her suffer for some reason. So, Mr. Callinger's sister died, and Betty says... My sister-in-law died. Where the fuck did this sister come from? I have never seen. I, I checked. I don't know how many articles. I read two books. No one ever. They never mentioned a sister. I don't get it. I don't get how all of a sudden now there's a sister that died. And uh, I'm confused. So maybe I missed something somewhere. Hard for me to believe because I looked through so much shit and I've been looking at this for a while. You never know. So if somebody can find me information that there actually was a fucking sister, I would love to know. Because it, to me, it feels like this big old gap. And it's weird. It's not. It's only mentioned in this one article. And it's mentioned that, she's di- that she died. And apparently Betty was upset about it. So you would think that that would... You'd think Joe would even mention it in the book. That he's upset his sister died and then his mom had a stroke. I, I don't know. It just, it's frustrating is what I'm saying. I couldn't even confirm what his real name was either. That was another thing that drove me crazy is because he was adopted. So he went by his adopted parents' last name, but actually it turns out there was one thing where his name wasn't even Joseph. It was some other fucking thing, but I could never find what his real name actually was. I was able to find some kind of legal document that showed his parents' information when they became, because they were immigrants. I was able to see that information, but I couldn't find anything that actually told me what his real name was before he was adopted. It's just the little things like that that kind of make me nuts when I can't find just basic information like that. But it's okay. That's part of the adventure. So we are at the end of the episode. I will be covering Callinger again, so if you feel like you missed something, you can always listen to this again. But if not, I will be covering him in more detail later in other episodes. So that is not the last you will hear of Callinger. Next up will be Gordon Stewart Northcott and his nephew, Sanford, with Wineville Chicken Coop Murders. If you would like more information, you can go to murderlabmedia.com. This is available on iTunes and Google Play. You can get the RSS feed from the website and listen to on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for entering the lab. They do agree that there was an armpit involved.